Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entail app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Hi, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but um, I have done two spin classes in the last week from a standing start, like the sort of lockdown standing start, which means that you're just an amorphous mass of sort of cells and matter and as a result of my two 20 minute spin classes um my good knee has started to hurt now <laughs> not the my, good knee yeah if the good knee hurts it means i've got two bad knees which means my <laughs> knees have gone which oh. means that you know how do you ever come back from that so you know how are you em oh uh hi annabelle i'm absolutely fine but i i don't know what it is whether it's just sort of having spent the whole of the last year being sort of such a massive people pleaser. That last year? I've just... The last year? <laughs> okay. All right. The last 46 years being a massive people pleaser, I'm suddenly like just saying no to people. No, I'm not going to do that. No, no. But then I wander around like a child going, are we okay? Are we okay? Aww. Is it okay that I said no? <laughs> so, it is okay. It's not great, just but that's I... the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, you're in the right place, Em. <laughs> Thanks, darling. I mean, these are turbulent times, aren't they? And we've all bent ourselves into all sorts of shapes over the last year and not in a fun way. Um, so now that we're slowly blinking into the sunlight, we're not sure who we are anymore. Uh, and we're not sure in particular um, who we are in relation to everybody else. Um, but thankfully... Today's guest is Emma Reed Turrell, a psychotherapist who spent the last 15 years working with individuals and organisations to help them untangle limiting beliefs and realise their full potential. And she is here today to talk about people pleasing. Oh, yes. She is. Are you a people pleaser? <laughs> there are a few different types, you know, even some bullshit ones. She's written the definitive book on the subject called Please Yourself, which is out now. So whether you've fallen down a people-pleasing hole in lockdown um, or whether you suspect you've held yourself hostage to other people's feelings for all of your life, uh, Emma can help. We are so pleased to have you here, Emma. How are you? Thank you so much. Well, I'm absolutely fine, but I need to know if Kate Fleming is alive or dead. So that's oh really what's occupying my every thought this week. And uh, I still have a few days left to find out. So, I'm Oh, gonna, my God. I'm Can we just scrap the whole people pleasing like <laughs> therapy podcast and just uh, just literally talk about that? Although Annabelle might get annoyed. Well, this is yet another thing that's making me feel like an outsider is the line of duty shtick. Because now I think there might be a people pleasing angle to this, but you can tell me, Emma. <laughs> I can't watch line of duty. I can't watch anything where people get hurt or upset or suffer where I guess I can't control what's going to happen next, where there's violence or distress. So Line of Duty is way, way, way beyond my remit. Well, How do we feel about that? By the end of this, I mean, imagine if this has been such a successful podcast about people pleasing that you just need to go and start at series one as soon as we get off this call. I mean, that, that, would, be, that would be success, right? <laughs> am, am, I right am I right in thinking that you're own you know because I'm interested in your idea about the empathy dial yes and I think the mind even though I even though I know I read as ruthless and cross most of the time um <laughs> that you know that that is that is as maybe but um but it is an empathy problem and am I right in thinking that you used to faint when you um when you came across anything where people were upset I, or in pain that's exactly what happened in fact it kind of started when I was about seven years old and I had decided that I really wanted to follow my father's footsteps and become the village vet and had this small issue where I couldn't stay conscious 
during any kind of operational procedure. So as soon as there was a sight of blood, I would see stars hit the floor and be carried out by, you know, four slightly grumpy veterinary nurses who'd had to just give up on their responsibilities in the operating theatre. And this was the whole, this is where it started for me. I just kept fainting every time I was in a situation where somebody was in pain and it wasn't myself, it was somebody else, I would pass out until eventually I saw a hypnotherapist who talked to me about going into my control panel and recognising that my empathy dial was up to the max and then some. So we did a whole kind of process of bringing it back down. But actually now I've understood it quite differently as well and the whole people-pleasing side of things. The reason I had that was because it was kind of a, a major intervention where I was pregnant with my first child and it occurred to me that he might bleed at some point in his life and that his mother staying conscious was going to be useful at those times. (laughs) So I had a real sense of this has to happen fast, which is why I did the kind of hypnotherapy route, because you can get these big results quickly. But now I look at it and I understand it a lot more from that perspective of I was occupying everyone else's internal experience at all times. And my my little spidey senses were on to the full. My radar was scanning, totally alert, totally hypervigilant. What does that person need? How do they feel? What's wrong? Because suddenly, you know, I'm going to be the solution. So when they did fall over, I, I experienced it as if it was happening to me. And literally, mm. when the paramedics came to rescue a window cleaner who'd fallen off a ladder at our house, they found me in the recovery position next to him with his broken <laughs> ankle as he tried to bring me round. What does one do about that, this inhabiting of other people's experience? So for me, I think it starts with understanding when that started, how that started, what function it performs. I'm 100% committed to this idea that our brain only does things for us that it believes it has a positive intention you know so we have a function it thinks it's doing us a favor it thinks it's doing us something we need so in that sense a hypervigilant brain has been taught on some level this is the safest brain to have in your system so actually part of this is about recognizing you know maybe we want to thank our hypervigilant brain for taking care of us up until now but also point out maybe that things are different we could update that we might not even be in that system anymore maybe we don't need to be responsible for everyone else anymore but then we can make the change i think for me as a sort of chronic classic people pleaser suddenly being in the house with everybody that i normally try and please was sort of almost sort of intolerable in the way because you can't actually it's one thing doing it within the parameters of, you know, a day and everybody's at work and I'm out of work. And so I've got like all different places to sort of recontextualize myself in and then suddenly be there and be like, oh my God, I need an excess of energy. And no wonder we're all exhausted because you're, I'm sort of Presumably as lockdown rolled out, their demands got greater and you tried to please them more and more and more and eventually just, what were you going to do? No, exactly. It was like my, my mother who who I absolutely adore, obviously I have to preface, I have to say that when I did therapy, when I used to do regular therapy, my, uh, my therapist is like, you don't have to say that every time. Like, yeah, you know, because, but she, you know, she wanted to see us and she was basically saying, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather see you and be at risk than not see mm-hmm. you. And, mm-hmm. and in my mind, I was like, that's a classic kind of guilt parental relationship where it's like, I love you so much. I'm prepared for you to kill me. Yes. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't even register as a risk, does it? But I think that's that's such a good point because there's something about that. You know, what I what I notice with people pleasers is often uh, a people pleaser is pleasing people in order that they can have pleased enough that they can then be left alone, that they can then be free of those people, that they can get away from them. 
you know so that idea of like I can absolutely please my children I can get them up for school we can have a nice time they can have breakfast and then I'm going to drop them off at the school gates but now I don't have to please them anymore great and suddenly I'm homeschooling and they're there and where's that where's my off-duty bit then because you know this only works if it's on and off and there's been no off for any people pleaser during lockdown and actually I think the way it all started was with this great sense of promise of oh we no longer have to say yes because actually we can't but suddenly the people pleasing just became more domestic because it will find it will find like like a sort of like a hole in a bucket yes. it will find a way to come out won't it totally because this is a kind of this is a conditioned response so this is our default right this is the bit that we just do unless we actively try to do something else can we talk about the different kinds of people pleaser because yes. i think sometimes you don't even know you're you know you don't even know you're doing it yeah absolutely so these four people pleasing profiles as i call them in the book all they share this relationship with the pressure to please so they have a response there is a pressure to please and they do something with that the first one I call the classic and that's that person who wants to get it right for other people they really want to make people happy you know so this is the person who is the perfect hostess she never forgets a birthday she's always the first one to come around with flowers she's genuinely trying to make your experience of life better she wants you happy Then we have the second type, which I call the shadow. And the shadow's a bit different because they're the ones who probably grew up around someone else who already had the limelight. So their role became being about buffering or furthering the needs of someone else. So actually, this was about, the way I describe it in the book is, this is the one who's the number one, number two. And they're the perfect wing woman. They're the one you want on your side because actually they want you to do well more than they want to do well themselves so I call them the shadow then there's the pacifier and this is one that lots of people recognize because it's not about pleasing as much as it's about not displeasing this is the person who doesn't want to rock the boat they don't want anyone disappointed with them they don't want anybody to be unhappy as a result of anything they do in fact if they can avoid having an impact on anybody at all that's probably the most comfortable position for a pacifier And then there's this fourth type, which is the one that really got my curiosity in the first place. This is the one I call the resistor, the one who might not even know themselves to be a people pleaser at all. And these are the ones who, in the face of the pressure to please, they just need to opt out. They need to not care. So they find a way to keep everyone at arm's length or organise their thoughts so that they're immune from this pressure to please. But it's just a reaction, the same as the others. I'm so sorry, Emma. We are not. <laughs> we are literally. She, Emma, is being absolutely brilliant explaining. <laughs> I'm just nodding so violently. I feel like I literally gave myself an injury reading yes. your book. Because, <laughs> because 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 Emily's one and two, and I'm four. I tell you what. Um, what what I always what I identify with, and I think I think I either read this and I in in your book or heard you talking about this, mm. is that I don't feel the need to please, mm. but I do feel. And I wonder if this is a flip side to that huge pressure not to lose yes i'm terrified of loss yeah loss of relationships loss of other people's esteem just loss of anything yeah makes me feel almost hysterical with or faint with fear yeah i think that's such a good pickup because that's exactly the the thing if you like that links all of those four profiles is the fear of loss or the fear of rejection but what's really interesting about the resistor you know, and you, you named it for us right at the beginning of this conversation when you said, actually, this is how I normally come across. And actually, this isn't how I feel underneath. That there is a part of you that's worked out, here's a way to protect myself because the only way I cannot lose is to not play. 
But you also have said that, you know, you, you know, you, you know, let's say it's me. Let's just say, you know, sure. as a, for instance, it's me. That, <laughs> Why not? That, e- that even though I, be, I may be advertising myself in a certain way, yeah. not because I particularly want to, just because that's what's sure. happened. Everybody who really loves me already sees what I'm trying yeah. to hide. Yes, totally. And I think that's, if we can start, because this is all about conditioning. So what we need to do with any kind of, any kind of conditioning, any kind of anxiety is to lean in rather than pull away from it. You know, that's the kind of therapy 101 there, right? But it's this, if I lean into that and I recognise actually I have got evidence whether people who I love already love me in spite of this side of myself that I try to hide. Possibly because of. Possibly because of, possibly. But that's the big possible, isn't it? That actually we don't know. They, They might love you in spite of whatever bits of you you have been told or decided aren't okay. Um, if you're too effective, you make this point again, you know, if you're too effective in your people pleasing, then it's actually not a kind thing to do or to be. And it can take you further and further away from ourselves and from our relationships. Yeah, I is think that right? totally. I mean, this is the sort of situation that we've probably all found ourselves in where we can't quite understand why we find some personalities actually quite draining to be around because what they're trying to do is get things perfect for us what they're trying to do is make us happy and the single thing that they end up achieving is you know a sense that we have to be responsible for saying they've done enough we have to be responsible for approving of what they've done we actually have to give up our own needs and say thank you for what they offer and of course the nature of someone who's people pleasing us is often that they've got quite a limited repertoire in terms of what they know to do so you get a, a, a gift every week and you start thinking, this doesn't make me happy. Not only does it not make me happy, it makes me think you don't want to know who I really am. You don't actually want to make space for me to be unhappy with you sometimes because the very nature of, of life is that if you want to be likeable, you have to be dislikable too. You know, there's two sides. But for the, for the people pleaser, I suppose, what, what they think is that they're keeping themselves safe. Totally. And that's where I call it selfish. And I don't mean that at all in a in a negative critical sense but it's about understanding that there is something they need from people pleasing you know and I absolutely count myself in that number that there have been times when I have needed to secure the reaction of other people by doing what I think they want from me because I need to feel that sense of safety and that's okay we need that as kids it's just as adults we might be able to outgrow it it's okay but it's it strikes me as a very ineffective safety measure if you're outsourcing your sense of identity and self to, to the vagaries of, of somebody else. I mean, yeah. that leaves you really kind of at risk of all sorts of turbulence, doesn't it? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, and it's really interesting as well. I had real identification with one of your case studies, which was literally just about a cinema ticket. Yeah. And it was someone's, t- it was someone's turn to choose which film to see. Yeah. And the people pleaser me would be like I don't mind whatever you choose even yeah. though it's it's not their choice it's my choice but then yeah. exactly tie myself into not thinking well I really want to go and see this you know superhero movie but they really want to go and see this you know rom-com so I'll choose the rom-com yeah. because I think that makes but it, you cheat or if everybody you're me you go I can't face this I'm not going anywhere <laughs> exactly exactly so but I'm also really intrigued like as well so I had a real and it actually only really occurred to me just thinking about um what we were talking about now but when I gave up drinking sort of 15 years ago I was so worried that people wouldn't want to hang out with me because I was no longer like a fun person as it were as as I imagined a fun person 
And actually my friends, the people who were really my friends, who stayed my friends, who are still my friends throughout that were like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We'll just do something else with you that doesn't involve, you know, drinking. And that was like a revelation to me as a human being that yeah. people, you know, the, the thing that I was using to kind of mask wasn't the thing that, you know, that people were attracted to and that it was okay to kind of, you know, just be myself and not be wild or, you know, and that's really interesting. Yeah. And And I think that it's been... Yeah, it's quite hard, you know, 15 years on or whatever, but also now our, our post lockdown, you know, I do feel like we're swimming in a kind of fondue of relationships with people. It's really hard to kind of extricate. And mm. you're very good on friendship as well, because, you know, one hasn't been able to have the kind of casual meetups with people. Mm-hmm. So you panic the... about that, right? Yeah. You panic about the connections that you've lost, the connections that you're meant to be nurturing and it all becomes, and then it gets, and then it starts to feel that it's a little bit about duty or that maybe you're again terrified of being on the outside and it's about loss or it just all feels scary and overwhelming trying to pick up the, the, the network of relationships again. Yeah, because that's that feeling of fear again, isn't it? That we're back to that feeling of fear, which is how can I keep myself safe? How can I protect myself? And maybe if we haven't had enough experiences of feeling fear, and it being okay and being taught actually you know what this feeling of fear this is a feeling here's what we do with it it's okay if we haven't had that experience we're going to have to try and find ways of avoiding it and of course when you talk about that resistor she's going to have to avoid it by not going if she's going to end up on the edge of a group feeling like an outsider or not knowing how to get in without going in both barrels and being what she thinks people expect her to be she's going to have to not go but there's this kind of situation we're all in now where actually I I talk about the opportunity of of lockdown lifting for friendships because not one of us is unchanged from the last year there is no baseline that anyone's going back to anymore in terms of what their relationships were and and are everything is up for negotiation now and I really like the idea that we can all start to have those conversations and say what do we want next in our friendship and it's interesting to me that you're saying Stop practicing this stuff when things are okay. You don't need yeah. to get to a crisis point and then suddenly feel that you can't breathe because you're so terrified, you feel so rejected, or you're in terrible conflict or whatever it might be. So what can we do to start to move away from relying on other people's reactions to us? Well, I think it first step is feelings, you know, and I talk about feelings a lot in the book, but it's that sense of if you are a people pleaser, the chances are you are better at feeling other people's feelings than you are at feeling your own you know when I talk about that that classic people pleaser she can probably tell you a hundred ways that she could please other people but if I asked her what makes you happy she might draw a blank and that's the situation for that people pleaser it's to come you know up close and personal actually with what do I feel and sometimes we have to go really granular on that stuff and say how do I physically feel when I do activity a or b or i might talk about having a joy list and sometimes i i talk about that because it's about having a really little step-by-step space where you could start to feel some of your feelings what do you like i really like i don't know think about line of duty i love sitting down watching line of duty on a sunday and at five to nine everybody leaves me alone and i'm there and i've got my cup of tea or my glass of wine or whatever it is i love that well i i love going and having a coffee you know in that spot looking out over that view I like reading a book in the bath. I like going for a run. I like hanging out with a friend. Start to learn what you like on a really granular level 
and do more of those things because we need you to start building up a feedback loop of what it feels like to please yourself so that you don't have to outsource it to the others, to the algorithms and to the the random chances, stabs in the dark that someone's going to mind read what it is in that moment that you needed. They're not. They're not going to. And it's really interesting because I, I, I've certainly been through some of those exercises in therapy and I, I, the physical pain that I felt mm. from mm. separating myself from a situation and doing something that I liked for myself yeah. was very extreme, actually. Like you're sort of like, you know, you're sort of tearing a part of yourself out, yeah. even though, I mean, even though obviously you're not. And actually it's about making yourself whole rather than yes. scattering yourself around and uh, and therefore you're useless to everybody actually but it's mm-hmm. really interesting how it's actually quite hard to do if you have been if you like me you're hypervigilant and do you remember when they tried to explain the therapist tried to explain <laughs> to you that you had to put on your emotional oxygen mask first so everyone else would be all right and it took you about a year to accept that you you know you would rather have died I was than like, have actually no no yes. in fact and I, I find it much easier yeah. to the pilot um, metaphor rather than the, the gas mask, the oxygen mask to, to yourself and then to the next person. Mm-hmm. I find it easier for, to think that the pilot has to be flying the plane. It has to be yeah. in good condition. Otherwise, everybody dies. That's better. Yes. Does that make sense? It's so interesting because it's kind of like the way it works for you is I can please myself if I can find that that is useful to others because yeah. you know I'm in service of others and therefore I can do this bit of pleasing myself whereas really we are talking about going even further aren't we and saying whether or not this is in service of others I have worth yeah. I'm important yeah yeah absolutely and I'll, I'll and do it for me yeah because also we all spend quite a long time wanting our therapists to be proud of us and think we've done it, you know, we're doing really well yes <laughs> I totally remember that I had an experience when I first went into therapy and I used to have this 20 minute wait and it was coming from work and I used to stop at a Starbucks drive through and pick up a coffee and I got into the habit of taking it into therapy with me and eventually she said, she, she commented and she said, you know, tell me a bit about that coffee cup and what you're doing when you're bringing that coffee cup in. And I felt sick. This thought of, oh, what have I done? I've been bringing coffee into therapy and I've, I've made her feel like I don't value the session or I should have been bringing her a coffee or I'm an awful, awful, hateful client, you know, and actually... <laughs> At that point, 20 odd years ago, I had to find a way out of that therapeutic relationship because to me that was then broken. Yeah. Yes. Obviously now I can understand the dialogue. Sometimes, sometimes it occurs to me that rather than having the difficult conversation, it would be better or easier just to never see that person again. Oh, utterly. <laughs> well said, resistor. <laughs> I know, as if we were ever in any doubt. Burn them. But, but the other thing that you talk about, I think, is the idea that, um, and I think a lot of people have found this during lockdown, if we didn't know it before, is that a lot of us are closet introverts. Yes. You know, and we thought that we had to be performative and marvellous all yeah. the time and yeah. brilliant and funny. And in fact, I'm now so aggressively um, protective of my alone time that it's its own problem yeah yeah but you know what we have to do that right we have to kind of have this seesaw where we realize that in order to rebalance we're going to have to go over that midpoint and and wobble around a bit on the kind of one now maybe I've become too introvert and I want to find my way back to a balance but it, it is about it is about a balance and I think we need to kind of be really brave actually about overstepping that midpoint 
and finding out where's natural for us. This yeah, whole letting inter- the pendulum swing. Yes, exactly. But not as a reaction, because that's that thing, you know, so often, if you imagine you were going to walk up a seesaw, you could not walk to that middle point and stand there first time. You would have to put a step forward or back or find that spot. So often we get to the point where we're so sick and tired of being at that end of the seesaw that we just take this damn charge up and we end up with that pendulum swing. That's when we do the damage and that's when the people pleaser gets a whole whack of shame that drives them further underground. So shame's a big one here, right? Yeah. Shame's a big, I think shame's a big one for our kind of generation of women. Yeah, I mean, I think shame is this kind of incredible force, right? Because we're pack animals and we're designed to stay within the confines of what's socially acceptable. And our pack right now is, is it's pretty, pretty strict. There's a lot of rules around what makes you, you know, if we just look at women, for instance, and what makes you a good woman or a kind of good, a good member of the sisterhood or the right kind of feminist or whatever it is that we now need to be to be good in that pack and actually I think we need to recognize that shame was about survival it it doesn't apply these days to putting a foot wrong or saying the wrong thing or liking something different that's not shame so we check in with our feelings we try to find these micro joys or the things that make us feel good and then what okay (laughs) then we take a few experiments so this is the bit this is the bit where you know I loved Emily's idea about I'm fine not being a people please as long as that doesn't put anyone out and if I can also find value in it for others. Brilliant. And it's kind of, ah, right. Now we've just found kind of where that barrier is because we need to go that step further on the seesaw to find out what happens next then. What happens if I do have an impact on someone? What happens if I go to the cinema and I say, I know you like rom-coms, but I don't want to see it. I want to go and see that action film tonight. Can we be brave and find out what happens? Because of course our fear is that's it, game over, it's ruined, it's broken, it's, it's, it's gone. But what we can actually find is that we get this dialogue back that says like, oh, that's interesting, well, that would be great to see that. Are you up for seeing the rom-com next week? Absolutely, I am. So this is the idea of experiments. Start small, start at the edges. By the edges, I mean start with those relationships where, you know, if they go wrong, it's, you're going to live to see another day. It's going to be okay. Maybe you're going to start just with a friend you you don't know so well or you're going to start in the supermarket basically just start with someone you don't give a shit about <laughs> start there start there it's so good i'm gonna be savage now you're gonna see me running around it's gonna backfire there's gonna be people ringing your doorbell emma and going yeah. what have you done to emily yeah i know she's like burned me up again on the road and took my car parking place <laughs> she's flicked the finger and she's not gonna yes. be exactly all of that stuff yeah no sorry but mm. yeah no, no, you're I absolutely get it. right. It was one of the great moments in your book where you talk about not being frightened of letting go of relationships that are not working for you and not yeah. just because of your... And I think, you know... But as Emma says, if, she, if we start with the small relationship, yes. a big experiment with a small relationship, <clears throat> yeah. then we can maybe manage that risk. Yeah. Don't start with your family yeah, of origin. That's... that's what I would say. You know, and actually, I also love giving people permission to leave their family of origin untouched. For most of us, we can get huge amounts of benefit in our everyday lives, actually without changing our family of origin very much at all. We can still get up-to-date friendships, relationships, work, colleagues. Because in a way, that's spilt milk, isn't it? I I mean, I'm going to say yes to that because I think that the reality is it's so conditioned that 
for all we know, maybe there is a conversation to be had there. You know, maybe you want to have a conversation at some point with a parent or a sibling that says, does this work for you? Because I don't know, I'm kind of up for making some changes. You could do that. My hunch is that it's it's kind of like wading through treacle uphill at that point to get change. And you know what? If they had it to give you, they probably would have done that by now. So it might be that they just don't have it to give. And that's not a criticism. And, you know, we don't even need to, to feel heat about that. We might need to grieve it because actually we might need to let go of something that we wish we had had. But once we've grieved it, we can probably accept who they are as people doing the best they could with what they had and focus our energy on those relationships where we have got that influence and they are in our everyday. Right, so yes, maybe I don't want to see the uh, the, the action film. Uh, maybe we should have a pizza instead or we could see the rom-com next week or there's more than one way to skin a cat. There is, and you know, you can say it doesn't always have to be not, it's not no, it's just not now or it might be um, yes and rather than no but. but. Mm. you know and it's habit forming this stuff presumably yeah. yeah it is healthy habits absolutely and you think about you know this is this is conditioning so we were trained into behaving this way we need to kind of commit to ourselves to train out of it it's just not going to happen overnight but i think what i'm amazed at is how quickly someone will come back to me and say i said no and it was okay or i let that person go and i feel better this is why we need your feelings online because it's the feelings feedback that's going to come in and say, you see, you're okay. You didn't think you would be, but you're all right. In fact, you have this sense and often people describe it as a physical feeling. They say, I just feel lighter. I just feel cleaner. I just, I feel free. You know, so tune into those feelings because if they're there, you've done the right thing. And it's a way to, you know, I, I, and I know women, myself not particularly, but I know lots of women who are still in their 40s at the mercy of what, what Emily and I would call terrorist friendships. Yes. And this would certainly be a way, a way of rooting those out, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, did a, I did something about friendships quite recently and the amount of women, exactly as you say, who have collected or accepted friendships that aren't very friendly. You know, that we kind of get to that point of saying, let's redefine what friendship means. And again, we're back to fear of loss because for many of us, it's that fear of losing friends and being left all alone or having no one there when we need them or no one who invites us to anything. Well, that was true when we were at school because when you're a teenager, you have to separate from your parents and the only way you can do that is by attaching to a peer group. Actually, as adults, that's not true anymore. You know, we can please ourselves. We can do that. So I think get really clear on what your idea of a friend is and what your idea of being a friend is. And if somebody is holding you against a job description that you never signed up for, you don't have to meet those needs for that person. In fact, I would go as far to say you can't meet the relational needs for that person. If they're always comparing you to the friend they wish you were rather than the friend that you are. And equally for you, what's your idea of a good friend? For me, it's really simple and it's just someone who wants the best for me. And actually, when I use that line, I really start to notice, well, hang on a minute, that doesn't feel like you want the best for me. I think this is something else. And, and then what about um, if it suddenly dawns on you that you're doing this in your romantic partnership? People-pleasing. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's over, does it? Mm, but well, it means that there's no. some adjustments to be made. Yeah, I think it means there might be some renegotiation there and that might be really welcome. So you're absolutely right. I don't think it does mean it's over. In fact, it means it might begin. You know, if this is someone who you have been trying to please 
and actually as a result you've been hiding some of your qualities or keeping secrets the more of you you can bring to that relationship the more of you there is for them to connect with so for many people they stop people pleasing and actually they get a great result and I'm not going to go and say that actually the ending isn't possible because of course the ending is possible and we have to go into it looking being open to that you know so maybe you are going to find out that this wasn't the right relationship for you but if it wasn't the right relationship for you the worst thing is if it's occupying the space of the one that might be yes I really like that in the book when you said something like rupture in relationship can be repaired if both parties are willing and if it can't be repaired the relationship was never yours to begin with that's actually incredibly freeing moment in the book where you think actually you're right you know we hold so tightly onto in the way that we hold on to bad behaviors or we hold on to bad relationships or we hold on to things that you know may not be working but they've always this is what we've always done and so Mm. therefore to to let go of them is sort of you know terrifying yeah but actually maybe it's about a new beginning but you know feeling that terror I mean I think you said in the book that people pleasing is anxiety Mm. in action Mm. And that really, mm. that really resonated with me in a really quite nonchalant yeah. way. <laughs> that's it. We like a bit of disturbance. I think that's the bit, though. You know, if, without going too science on it, that there is this, there is a part of our brain that drives our behaviours based on the evidence it has as to what has kept you alive in the past. And this part of our brain will lead you to find those situations that you have survived in the past. Your brain at that point. It's not that bothered if you're happy or fulfilled or in love. It's it's pretty satisfied that you're alive. You know, this is a, a function of the brain that's 300 million years old. This is not there doing your active problem solving for you. But the problem is, if you have people pleased in a romantic relationship and stayed okay, your brain's going to say, yeah, keep doing that. Go for it. Crack on. That's 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 done pretty well for you so far. And actually, we need to override that part of our brain sometimes and use that that more cortical part of our brain to say, I am allowed to want more than survival in romantic relationships, in friendships, in work situations, in the supermarket. I'm allowed to thrive. This isn't survive. Work is an interesting space for people pleasing women. Yeah, it's huge. It's incredible. And, and work is somewhere where... You know, when we really boil it down, this is this is a place that that pays a salary that we use to, I don't know, pay a mortgage, pay rent, pay bills. And yet many of us outsource our self-esteem to those employers. And I was I was talking to someone who was using this as a metaphor saying, you know what, so you're in a situation at work and someone asks you to do something or they they criticize you and it hurts like, ouch, that hurt. Then you kind of, you're driving home and you're at the traffic lights and you remember, you replay that conversation and ouch, it hurts again. And then you get home and you cook dinner and you remember that conversation. They told you that they let you do something wrong and ouch, it hurts. And then you're in the bath and you remember it again and, and ouch, it hurts. And in the bath, who is it that's hurting you? You know, and like, if we're going to narrow this down here, who was in the bath? That there is a point at which we have to accept that actually when we turn the criticism of the people in this case that we work with into a big stick to to beat ourselves up with it's only us that has the power to put the big stick down at that point but people pleasers have a wardrobe full of big sticks with different luggage labels on them you know saying you were rubbish at this you weren't good enough at this this person was better than you you didn't make me happy 
you know, and it's really about kind of exercising some of those big sticks. So that yeah, because can... one thing can happen and all the big sticks can come out at once. It's like, yeah. it's like they all pile in, she says, you know. Maybe, <laughs> as hypothetically. <laughs> they do. So you've done your experiments with the people um, around the periphery of your life. And then as you start to learn how that might be, then do, do you, can you take that inwards? Definitely. Come Towards in. Towards more core relationships. Yes, definitely. Think about the relationships as, you know, the high risk, high reward relationships. They're the ones you're heading towards. So you're starting out the edges, low risk, low reward relationships. You're practicing. When you practice and you get some evidence that it was okay that you stood up for yourself in the supermarket and you didn't please the other person and let them go in front or take the last pint of milk, you took what you needed. When you find that that's okay, that part of your brain that I was just talking about logs that as a piece of evidence that you pleased yourself and you survived. You can come in with that. It will offer you that thought more readily next time and say, hey, listen, maybe you can actually do what you need to do here. So you might find yourself with that friend at the cinema saying, can we negotiate about this? Or you might find yourself in that situation saying, I've just discovered I'm much more of an introvert than I thought I was. I don't want to go out and sit on a cold terrace and, and, and drink wine, but I would love it if we could you know, do something like go for a walk together and, or we'll like watch a, um, when we can get back together, we'll sit on the sofa and we'll watch a movie together. That would be great. So you start to practice with that and then you can come in another level. Maybe this is where you have to know which are your high risk, high reward relationships. Maybe you can come into work at that point and say, thanks for offering me opportunity A. It's actually opportunity B that really floats my boat and let yourself hear that, oh, that's absolutely fine. Go for it. In fact, at work, I would say that the more you people please, the more likely it is that you're curbing your own potential. So it tends to be people who are willing to be a bit disagreeable at work, who get to go further and faster and where they want to be, because they're willing to think outside the box and be confronting. And actually finding that that's rewarded can be really welcome. Then you might find that you end up with your relationships and the parents of origin at the end, but that's your call. I like the idea of the brain being like Kate Fleming yes. and Steve Arnott in the glass box with the forms going on form 555. You'll see oh, this evidence. Absolutely. I resent, I love this. That I resent this metaphor because I can't watch Line of Duty. We're going to get you to a how point. Can, how can I get myself to the point where I can watch Line of Duty or at least Finding Nemo? Oh, do you know, I would love it, right? If you could sit there, finding, let's take Finding Nemo as an example. If you could sit there, and this is another bit of evidence, so some people might find be a bit sceptical about this, but, but I know this to be true, that it's the fear of feelings that's stopping you watching Finding Nemo, right? It's the fear of the feeling of sadness when he's abandoned or whatever it is that happens you know in the line of duty it's the the feeling of of loss or stress or sadness or fear or whatever it is so fear of feelings drives us to people please what's the antidote to the fear of feelings it's exposure the antidote to any form of anxiety is exposure right so we have to lean into it and what i know is that if you allowed yourself to feel a feeling let's say sadness and i'm not talking about sadness where you get brimful of tears and then those tears break through and it's difficult and discombobulating and uncomfortable because you're somewhere where you shouldn't be crying i'm talking about the tears that are ploppy wet snotty willing tears that roll down your face and you know make your t-shirt wet if you allow yourself to cry for seven minutes most people stop 
at the end of seven minutes naturally. For men, it's a little bit shorter, it's six point something minutes. If you allow yourself to cry for those many minutes, the feeling will have passed and you'll be back in the movie and you'll be watching it for what it is again. And every time you do that, you get an experience, evidence, you get an experience that it was okay. You didn't love it, you don't have to love it, but no one dies of a feeling. Some people actually do die as a result of the actions they take to avoid a feeling. I had a, a sort of rather titanic therapist who was a brute and who was amazing years ago and I was really, really on the floor. And at one point she just sort of put down her notebook and went, you know what, Annabelle, there are any feelings. <laughs> like, You're not supposed to say that. <laughs> Why the fuck am I sitting here? <laughs> but no, but yes, you know, feelings generally probably won't kill you while you're watching Line of Duty. But uh, something not. in me thinks that they will. Yes, exactly, right? And the only way of finding out that they don't is by feeling them and getting some evidence. Oh my God, you're telling me to watch it. I am. Watch it. <laughs> it's your prescription. <laughs> Series one exactly. starts at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would recommend Please Yourself, Emma's book, to really anybody, whether you think you're a people pleaser or not. When you tell someone they look nice because you want them to mm. like you and not make mm. them sad and they don't look nice, you are doing everybody. You are no, so to please yourself is, is um, which you have written about at length, obviously, is the responsible and generous way to be in relationship. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go with that because I think at worst, you're going to find out that some of the people you were pleasing didn't value you but at best you know to your point Emily actually the fears you had when you stopped partying in the ways that you used to party in actually just revealed the fact that you already had worth and wouldn't it be nice to find that out now rather than later yeah know your worth and please yourself please yourself and on that note um Thank you yeah. so much for joining us today. Thank it's you. given me far too much to think Aww. about. Feeling a bit resentful, <laughs> a bit resentful, a bit anxious. To you watch. know. Yeah. Yes. It's good. I'm, sure I'm going to have to watch Game of Thrones next. <laughs> <laughs> um, and w- you love a costume drama, darling. And uh, yes, I do. Um, but um, um, will you will you come back and talk to us about other frightening things? Oh, another totally. Time? Because, Nothing um, I love more than talking about frightening things. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, when I recover from this, yes, I'll drop you an email. Brilliant, do that. <laughs> okay, okay thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. You can be a masterpiece and a work in progress at the same time. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.